I mean, who talks more trash? Who talks more trash to us than us? Welcome back to the Hardbat Athletics Inside and Out podcast. I'm your host, Derek Batman. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Mark England, the visionary co-founder and head coach of Enlifted. With a robust background spanning over 16 years, Mark has dedicated his life to exploring the transformative power of words and stories. His journey from an elementary school PE teacher to a pioneer in personal development is marked by an impressive track record, conducting over 5,000 one-on-one coaching sessions, leading more than 750 workshops, featuring in 375 podcast guest appearances, contributing to two documentaries, developing three online training courses, and delivering a TEDx talk. Mark holds a master's degree in education and has personally certified all 390 enlifted coaches. He's passionate about discussing topics like overcoming the victim mentality through fitness, the impact of negative stories on breathing, tackling imposter syndrome among coaches, and the significance of soft talk and speech rate. Join us as we dive deep into the mind of a man who's changing lives by changing narratives. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our amazing sponsor, Lucid Branding Solutions. If you're running a service-based business and looking to boost your profitability, you'll want to hear this. Lucid Branding Solutions is your go-to partner for transforming your business's online presence. They specialize in creating visually stunning media that's not just eye-catching, but tells the story of your brand in a compelling way. But that's not all. In today's digital world, having a strategy is key. Lucid Branding doesn't just throw ideas at the wall to see what sticks. They craft tailored digital media strategies that align with your business's goals, ensuring that your brand not only gets noticed, but remembered. And let's talk about leads. We all know how crucial they are. Lucid Branding optimizes lead nurture systems, ensuring that from the first point of contact, your potential customers are engaged, informed, and ready to take action. Plus, in a world driven by data, Lucid Branding Solutions stays ahead of the curve. They provide top-tier data insights, giving you a competitive edge and keeping your business at the forefront of your customers' minds. So if you're ready to take your service-based business to the next level with a branding strategy that's as smart as it is stylish, visit Lucid Branding Solutions today. That's www.lucidbrandingsolutions.com. Trust me, your brand deserves this kind of brilliance. Now let's get back to the show. Mark England, welcome to the show, brother. It's cooking, Derek. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> I, I, I greatly appreciate it. You said this is number 379 for you. Correct. All right, so I have two questions. How hard was it to get to 379, and why are you keeping count? Those are good questions. The first 100 was the hardest. So we're talking about podcasts, everybody. This is my 379th podcast that I've gone on as a guest talking about only one thing on all those podcasts. I only talk about one thing. It's the power of our, our words and stories and breath. Yeah, the first hundred. So I started going on shows. The first one was in 2016. No, no, let me back up 2014. And I probably went on four shows that year. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, 
And they've become, we've spent over the years, the eight years that we've been in business, we've spent $0 on advertising in the traditional sense. It's all been podcasts and word of mouth. And, um, and I enjoy talking about this stuff that we're going to get into to the degree, degree that we do today. Um, I, I meet very interesting people like yourself. You know, you know, I had that conversation when I was on the road about, about a month ago. That was fun. And, and I'm going to do a thousand. Yeah, I'm going to do a thousand. I like keeping track of things and giving myself, you know, numbers to shoot for. Goals? Thousands, thousands legit. Somebody goes on a thousand podcasts and talks about only one thing for each one of those shows. That's that's a something. That is something. That is something. Now, how much more comfortable are you now from the first hundred? Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, A tremendous amount. You know, the, the scale is insecure, confident comfortable and most people would pay not to go on a podcast and have it recorded and have people <laughs> listen to right and have people listen to it's the same thing with workshops or presentations i was on a radio show last night and people that do go on shows when they first start out they're praying for a sliver of confidence great cool yeah i'll take two two of those and if you keep going with the thing and get the reps in and learn to breathe well while you're doing the thing that you want to get better at you'll eventually you'll get to comfortable and that's the promised land. That's past confident. Where would you say that bravery or courage falls on that continuum? Every single time you show up in the beginning stages of getting good at something, because most people are bumping into the imposter syndrome, like I did when I first started going on shows, when I first started coaching, when I first started giving podcasts. And what the imposter syndrome is, for most people, it is a, a slice of the beginner syndrome and a telephobia is the combination of those two things. So a telephobia is the fear of not being good enough. And you put in you put together the awkwardness of learning something okay and the fear of not being good enough and you've got what most people refer to as the imposter syndrome because imposters they don't have imposter syndrome imposters they're not afraid of being a fake or a fraud or a liar or taking advantage of people because they're doing that they know they're doing that so imposters don't have imposter syndrome everybody (laughs) it's everybody else until you eventually get over yourself and the story that you tell yourself to yourself, also known as mindset, is part of the process of of dismantling the victim mentality and the imposter syndrome and the fear of not being good enough. So as you are well aware of, I had Kimberly on the show uh, about a month ago now. And um, phenomenal. not only is she an amazing human, but we had such a good quality conversation. And uh, a point I brought up to her that I promised I would bring up to you is how much should we accept imposter syndrome as as part and parcel of the willingness and desire to want to grow personally? It's to be expected. And if somebody has the imposter syndrome, uh, which most people do when they first start getting into things, as the as their identity changes, as their mindset changes, um, it is to be expected that you're going to have that. And if you show up anyway and keep doing the thing, then you're demonstrating courage, which circles back to what this courage and bravery, which is what you were, were referring to earlier. Yeah, no, I want to zoom out and kind of take a 30,000 foot view before we zoom back in. And I, I guess the, the question I got to ask, since this is what you talk about on every single podcast you're on, is why are why is choosing our words so important? Because if we don't choose our words, someone else is going to choose our words for us. Can you give me an example? Sure. The news, 
they want to scare you and then sell you weird drugs that have a laundry list of symptoms and then a new truck. Okay. And left to its own devices, the way the English language is used almost universally right now in an unconscious way, because this is an education issue. We don't learn. Did you have any classes, Derek, when you were in the 11th grade about how to get your language working for you so you can stay focused on what's important and keep the drama down and build yourself up in your imagination and breathe well and be a good listener? No, the way most people use their words, it's in a it's in a vague, externalized, inflammatory way, and hence the chaos and problems and people that are riddled with flavors of the victim mentality. Hence, hence the the relentless conversation about gotta improve my mindset, gotta work on my mindset. Let's just get how about we start with a good definition of mindset? How about we start with a simple one? Because you can ask Google if you do, you're gonna get 17 answers of what mindset is on the first page alone. Here at Enlifted, we have, in my opinion, the very best definition of mindset in the game. It's the story that you tell yourself. That's what your mindset is, everybody. Now, if we look at that from like a macro and a micro perspective, the story we tell ourselves can be something that can be malleable moment to moment, but it could also apply to a grand scale, right? The story we tell ourselves about who we are as a person up till this point. Is there a difference in the way that you view this moment to moment versus self-reflection? Both of those fall under thinking about our thinking. Most people aren't thinking about their thinking. They're, they're just thinking. We don't learn to think about our thinking. Yeah. Well, and let me ask you this, like, you know, we, I've, I've heard and, and is, has become pretty popular for people to say things like, like how you feel is a lie or better yet, imagine that the voice in your head is a stranger would you pay attention to them in the same way that you're, you know, giving credence to your own voice? Obviously laying the groundwork for a lot of the times you're going to say things to yourself that aren't true. It's you choose whether to believe them or not. Yeah. I mean, the way, whether the way we feel is a lie. I mean, people can, you know, um, she needs to respect my time more. And then I say that, and then I'm the one that really needs to respect my time more. I mean, who wastes more of our time than us? It's not even a close second. It's us. Uh, and so I say that and then I feel um, the way I feel about it. Is that a lie? Whether it is or it isn't, how we feel is important. Okay. Whether it's a lie or a truth. You ask anybody, are your feelings important? Most people are going to say yes. And, and you know what? And if everybody gets honest, they're going to say yes. And and if, uh, if you ask, most people would want to feel some semblance of confident, competent, connected part of something. And yet most people don't. And why is that? I know why that is because we got a glitch in our language, everybody. We got a glitch in our language. We got a little problem with the, the story that we tell ourselves, and it's an opportunity to. What, what do you think some of those glitches are? There are three pillars of what we had enlisted call conflict language, and those pillars account for roughly 85% of the language patterns that people use to accidentally and unconsciously create victim-centric stories. How about I, I recite the definition of the victim mentality, and then we'll get into those language patterns, if, if, that's, what, if, that's, if that's the direction you want to go. You want to do it? Okay. I'm going to do this twice. And everybody, here's note take. It's note taking time. If you're one of those people, the numbers are 30, 50, 80. We remember 30% of what we uh, hear, 50% of what we write, and 80% of what we turn around, teach, share, or explain. So if you pick up a pen and write down the definition of the victim mentality, 
you're going to get some extra ROI for your investment listening to this show. And you're also going to put yourself in a very exclusive club because most people have never heard the definition of the victim mentality, much less written it down. I'm going to do it twice. First time slow, second time speed it up and put some polish on it. The victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence. The victim mentality depends on a habitual thought process and attributions. I took a pinch out of the middle. That's the verbatim definition of the victim mentality. Here's a second. Here's a, here it is again, faster. The victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person tends as a tendency, everybody. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. A person tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence. The victim mentality depends, circle that word on a habitual, underline that word, Thought process and attributions. That second sentence is right between the eyes, right where it belongs. The victim mentality depends, as in it has to have a habitual, habitual accurately implies duration and addiction. Thought process. What's a thought process? Glad you asked. It's how you put your words together repeatedly. And then attributions. What's an attribution? It's a characteristic. And we're known as the language people. That's cool. Nice to be known for anything. And we might as well be known as the language and the breathing people. So the sex, so after the words, the second most important thing that we focus on is the breath, breathing and push comes to shove gun to head. It's about the breath. I love me some cool words and stories, and we're here to help people breathe better. What are some ways that the victim mentality mentality manifests itself in our language? Good question. Well, we can look at some of the outcomes of it. First, so let's we'll focus on breath. Restricted, constricted, upper chest, shallow, coastal breathing. Those are all different ways of describing the same thing of people's breathing stuck in their chest. And most people's breath is stuck in their chest. And so for the first 10 years, of, I've, been, I've been doing this work full time for 16 years. The first 10 years of me, of my practice, I did a lot of work in a variety of very cool uh, yoga communities. And they'd bring me in to do this work on teacher training courses or big workshops and things like that. And we would pick up a pen. And even though it felt like it weighed 500 pounds, we would write out the scary words. We'd write out the scary stories. And most people keep their scary stories. This, bra- this brings up bravery and courage again, too. Most people keep the scary words and stories in their head. And guess what? They don't go anywhere. A story kept in the head takes up a lot of space and it's seemingly infinite. Where does it start? Where does it stop? There's the worst part again. Ouch. The story is in me and I'm still in the story after all these years because time doesn't apply to that part of our existence experience. Time doesn't apply to the emotional body. That's why you can go into a story of when something happened when you were six. And if you get into the details, because the devil is in the details, it hits you in the feels damn near close to or exactly how it did back then. And so stories, scary stories kept in the head, trap our breathing in our chest. It's called amygdala hijack. Wow, don't I sound smart. And then we experience things like tunnel vision. 
we get fixated on something, one particular part of it. And not only are we fixated on the thing, the thing is up close and in our face. It's the mechanics of storytelling. Charlie Chaplin said, life viewed under a microscope is a tragedy. Breath trapped in the chest, story, scenario, worst case scenario, thing we're tired of reliving or the, the, the we're catastrophizing about is up close and scary. Breath unlocked, breath descends low and slow down in the abdomen, low and slow breathing, and it zooms out. And this, you know what mirrors this perfectly? Running, sprinting, sprinting versus strolling versus walking slow. When someone goes on a wind sprint, you're a fitness expert. When someone goes sprinting, wind sprints, what happens to their peripheral vision? It, it lessens. Yeah. It, and they get fixated on what? That finish line, that the, the goal, the cone, whatever the thing is, right? And what yeah. happens when someone goes out and, and same thing with the story. The faster the story goes, the more fixated and tunnel vision we, we, we get on the thing. And then someone goes out on a stroll, like a slow walk. What happens to every, their field of vision? It expands. Correct. It's the same thing with story. Rate of story. The faster the story goes, the harder it is to change. Most people are not paying attention to the rate of speech or how, like, uh, or, um, how fast the story goes, let's say, in their head. Let's just say rate of speech. That's the easiest thing. Most people aren't paying attention to that. Most coaches aren't paying attention to the rate of speech for their clients. And that is a major lever. Okay. You want to help. So you, yeah. Go ahead. Are, are you saying that we almost have a, a feed forward system that by lowering our respiratory rate and forcing our breath further down into our belly versus chest breathing, in addition to slowing our words down, that we can change the perspective of the stories that we're telling? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and this, again, this is the mechanics, the mechanism of story. Most people aren't paying attention to the, the mechanics, the levers, okay, the, the buttons. And, and so the faster the story goes, like I said, the harder it is to change. And you know, you all know what the, what the fastest way to slow down the story is? That's to write it down. The fastest way to slow down the story racing thoughts. Nobody ever says they have strolling thoughts. Racing thoughts is to pick up a pen and write the story down. It will slow down and you will give yourself some zoomed out perspective. And then from there, there's other cool stuff that you can do. But that's that's 98% of the time is half of the answer to the problem. It's Kindlin's law. In, in one form, Kindlin, Kindlin's law states that when the question is, is written down adequately, the problem is half solved. When, when, yeah, when, the, when, the, when the question is formulated well, written down and formulated well, it's, it's half solved. And when the story, the scary story is, is written down conversationally, bullet points and half sentences don't cut it, then the, then the, then, then the dragon is half slayed. If you want to get all Jordan Peterson about it, confront the dragon, get the gold. So we're again, circling back to the, the bravery and courage thing. Nobody's going to go in there and change your stories for you. Okay. There, there, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of mega industries out there that benefit from people saying an upbreak regulated chronic stress states. There's, there's mega industries built off of the back of individual and collective victim mentalities. And I find that dumb. Now, Given that there's nothing that's going to make our stories go away or change permanently after one session of writing, reading, thinking, saying anything through like a concerted lens, how do we tactfully or tactically, I should say, create a system or a process that helps these things change over time? 
I have seen people change their perspective in one session. I have seen people, you know, my story, the sto- my story is out of control. I feel my life is out of control. If somebody says my life is out of control, then what they're saying is their story is out of control. And 99.99% of the time, they're saying my story, it's out of control because the damn thing's going so fast. And if someone tells me that, then I, let me guess, you haven't written it down. You haven't written down the, the impending divorce. You haven't written the story down of that and what you're really afraid of will happen. Or you haven't written down the story of when you were nine and your parents sat you down and told you they were getting a divorce. And, and you've replayed that damn thing 1,500 times in your head. Happened once, but we replay it you know, thousands of times and blame the, the universe. And when someone goes from story in scary story in my head to scary story on paper, they have, they have crossed the Rubicon in one sense. And, and can is, make a lot is there of pr- a framework? Is there a framework that you recommend for getting our stories out of our head and onto paper? Thousand percent. Now, if you want a peer, this had two hundred peer reviewed papers on it, and so Andrew Schumerman just dropped a podcast referencing studies that are showing how valuable getting the stories out of our head are. Okay. And we have our own layman's take on it. Those studies and, and, and Pennebaker's approach is to, is to write for four writing sessions in a row of 15 to 30 minutes each on the, and you just keep your pen on the paper. You just keep writing, keep writing on a, the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you or something almost as the almost as most traumatic thing. Some, something that's up there on the scale. Okay. And get the words out. And, and they've, again, they've got a lot of uh, science now to, to demonstrate how that can positively influence a variety of you know health markers and, and even chronic and acute diseases. Now, here at Enlifted, we are not scientists, okay? Not even close. All I am is I'm a former elementary school PE teacher with a handful of MMA fights. So I'm not cracking nuclear fission and I'm not solving world hunger. Okay. What I do do though, is because I find it fascinating helping people change stories, change words and change stories and, and the whole, the breadth, the mechanics of it, for whatever reason, it's just, it's, it's, I, I find it fascinating. It's an attraction. Attraction is not a choice. It's held my attention the whole time. And we have our way of helping people with their stories. And it's called four-stepping a story. First things first, and it needs to be a specific event title a specific event let's just say the divorce divorce and you or nine and half the time and this is me i stopped counting in 2017 at 5,000 one-on-one coaching sessions this is me having sat in the chair with a lot of people half the time that people the, the children are told hey the parents are getting a divorce it happens in the kitchen at the kitchen table okay so let's just say title 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 the specific event of when your parents told you they were getting a divorce and you know kitchen table okay I've heard that one more than once. And, and so you pick up the pen, you title it, and you write out what happened conversationally. Conversational writing is as if you were telling the story. And it's easier for, for people to write about this stuff. That's almost exclusively because they're not having to say it, which does bring up more emotions and feelings, and the story is slower. So they can slow the whole thing down and get and get the details on paper. And when someone goes from story up here to story down here, remember story kept in the head swirls seemingly infinite takes up a lot of space story written down. It's now finite. There's the first word. There's the last word. And let's say this particular story, there's eight sentences, two paragraphs and step one, title it, write it out. Check. Step two, read it. Regular speed. And whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens is correct. Whatever feelings show up, perfect, great. 
Step three, same story. Read it again at 70% of your normal rate of speech. Now, what happens? Same thing. When we go from sprinting to strolling, what happens when someone slows down their rate of speech? The breath unlocks. The breath starts to loosen up. And that's a big deal. Good luck changing your client's minds if their breath is trapped in their chest. It's not going to happen. They're going to they're smile and they're going to nod and you're think you're doing a great job. It's not happening. Same thing. Good luck changing your own mindset, the story that you tell yourself if your breath is trapped in your chest. The breath is the, is the king. It locks everything in or it loosens everything up. And then step four, same story, red slow, plus a breath in between each sentence. And here's what it could look like. If you want me to, I can, I, I, I yeah, can demonstrate it. Okay, cool. So, so let's pretend this is me making it up. My parents sat my sister and I down at the dinner table. My mom was crying and my dad was emotionless as usual. I remember looking at my little sister who was scared and under the table. We both knew something was about to happen. My dad spoke and said he and my mom were getting a divorce. And that we were going to live with my mom in the house and he was getting an apartment across town. I didn't even know what this meant, but I knew it wasn't good. That was the first time that I ever started believing there's no one's there for me and I need to, uh, I need to look out for number one. I need to, I need to take care of myself. And y'all can bet your sweet ass in the process of going from story kept in the head to step one, writing it down conversationally to, to reading it. Step two, to reading it slow, step three, and and reading it, step four, reading it slow, plus a breath in between each sentence, the feels are going to come up. They're going to come, and they're going to come up and they're going to come out. That's a good thing. Joseph Campbell said it. Any feeling felt all the way through is bliss. And the stories, the scary stories, it's like a spicy Thai dish, everybody. They burn going in. Yeah, you, you're smiling. You know what this is. They smolder <laughs> while they are in there, okay? And they burn coming out. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go down to your local Thai restaurant and get get the get the curry Thai hot. Ask, ask them to make it like the like the guys in the kitchen eat it. And in 48 hours, you message me, assuming everything is is working accordingly, and you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. And this is exactly why people tried their best to avoid this stuff, feeling the thing through. There's a part of me that you get. A, a huge cohort. There's a part of me that wants you to get a huge cohort of people that follows your instructions and goes to a Thai restaurant. 
I do too. I'll, I'll I'll attach his email so you can you can shoot Mark a message. Mark at enlifted.me. There you go. Email me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, that was a great demonstration. I've heard you do that before on on other podcasts, um, and, and I've always found it to be super impactful. Um, you know, one thing I I, I feel like uh, it is interesting for me and uh, a curiosity I have is coming you know from for for you being a PE teacher. Was there anything that occurred in your experience working with kids that kind of led you to go this direction of becoming so fascinated and uh, intrigued by language? It was the first time I started paying attention to my words is when I started teaching elementary school PE. And what I realized is, hey, listen, I was talking to myself. Hey, you can either make this easy on everybody or you can make this hard on everybody. And, and, and what I mean by that is I'm talking about instructions. The better instructions that I give and what I've found is that slower, slower, slower directions, slower directions, less words, good pauses, that kept that got everybody's attention and it kept everybody's attention. And you know what? There's a, there's less, there's less than we, there's less of a a gap between kids and adults when it comes to teaching than most people might think. And also entertaining, you know, the kids, I enjoyed teaching the kids and they picked up on that. Okay. If someone, if a teacher doesn't want to be there, Everybody knows that it's like somebody's on stage giving a talk. If, if they're scared because they're an amateur and they haven't prepared and their breath is trapped in their chest and, and all, all that stuff and they don't want to be up there. Also, they're f- afraid of being seen. Most people are afraid of being seen until they are not and they're not they don't want to be up there. They're having they're not and they're not. Everybody knows that. It's obvious. It's obvious when somebody wants to be there. And on an important side note, um, uh, I was listening to a guy on the Sean Ryan show. Um, talk, uh, talk to a, a, a Navy's Navy SEAL instructor guy used to d- run buds and, and Sean Ryan goes, um, could you all tell, was there a way you could tell who was going to make it and who wasn't it? Okay. Guy goes, Oh yeah, it's was, it was fucking obvious. And, and the, the thing, who wants to be there? Whoever wanted to be there was almost a, a, a barring injury. Of course, they're the ones that are going to get across the finish line. They're going to do it. And the people that didn't want to be there, they flaked. They talked themselves out of it. And so I liked teaching. I liked teaching then, and I love teaching now. I look forward to these podcasts. I look forward to workshops. I look forward to our certifications. And and I know I'm off on a bit of a rant, rant but I do it professionally. It comes across. It just makes the whole thing more fun. And, and also, to answer your question specifically, no, there wasn't one thing. There wasn't one thing that I picked up when I was teaching kids that made me want to do this work more or it was me and my personal story that, that needed the help. That's how I got into this thing. I wouldn't have, if, if I'd gotten my way, I would have, I would have fought for part of me still wants to go out there and, and lace them up. And yeah, if it wasn't for that, I would have, and I'm, I'm so much happier now, man. I'm, I'm, I'm a net positive to, to my community. You know, I was a net negative when I was fighting. It was, I was very selfish. It was all about me. And, you know, just a little embarrassing to admit, but I, just, I, I, re- I got off on people being afraid of me. You know, I liked it. I liked intimidating. I was a bully. I liked intimidating people. I like being known as a fighter, especially back then in the late nineties. Nobody was doing that. It wasn't even called MMA yet. It was weird. It was weird. And it was, it was, it was illegal in like three States. Take out the like Alabama, <laughs> yeah. Alabama, Colorado. I mean, like, like I, I got, I got the very first UFC in November, 1993. And I started training in 96. 
and John McCain hated our guts. And anyway, people thought you were weird if you did it, and, and but they knew what it was. And I liked it. Yeah. And so I got over that part of me for the, for the most part, I'm comfortable with my mean streak these days or it's, it's in check. It's good. It's, 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 it has its purpose at least once a week. I did it this morning. At least once a week, I, I, my, I, I roll over out of bed, my feet hit the ground and I go, I get to do this again today. I get to do this again today. I'm 16 in and I've got a 50 year goal. It's in my calendar, dude. We could go share screen and I could scroll down to January 17th, 2057. And it's in my calendar. It's my last day on the job. I don't know what I'm going to do. Don't know. But I'll tell you what, what's happening on January 18th. Nothing. I'm not talking about after 50. I'm not talking about this ever again, dude. Ever, never, ever, ever will I mention anything about words and stories and squiggles and sound after if I didn't if I didn't get it out there in force by then it wasn't going to happen. So screw it. Where's the bar? What made you want to put an end date to this? That's a, that's a very good question. So in 2011, I went over to London to do a five-day NLP practitioner training with myself and 700 other people. I just, it was, it was with Richard Bandler, who's one of the founders. So cool. I went over there, did that, and then went back the next year and did seven-day master practitioner training. Oh, and guess what, folks? You can't master anything in, in 12 days. You can't master anything. You can't master anything worth mastering in 12 years. So anyway, anyway, so I, but I, I did, I got, I, I did 12 days and I got a master practitioner, whatever. The thing that I walked out of there with that was incredibly valuable in 2012, which didn't click into place until 2017 was he was on, he was on stage and this is exactly, I'm gonna drop in an F-bomb here. I hope it's okay. I think I've already dropped enough bomb, whatever. Um, <laughs> Keep it going. Uh, yeah, cool. And so he's on stage and there's, there's a lot, there's a huge packed room. And he goes, is exactly how he did it. And he looks like the penguin from, from Batman. He goes, I've been doing this shit for 40 fucking years. And I look at that and I go, and then I, and I asked a question, which I was screwed after that. I go, huh. I wonder what that feels like. I wonder what it feels like to do something for 40 years. And I walked out of there and that question came out of my mouth. And then five years later in June, we did our, our TEDx talk, knocked it out of the park and I got off stage and I, so I'd been doing this work for, for 10 years full time. And I got off stage and I go, I, that's it. I don't have any other questions. This thing has held my attention for, for it's, it's like a, it's like a woman. You've, you've, you're, you're, you're fun and you're hot. And I've thought you're, you're fun and hot and you'd make a good wife for the past six years now, every single day that I've, I've looked at you and thought about you, let's, let's, I'm going to wife you up. Okay. And so I wiped this stuff professionally. I, after 10 years, I got off stage and I go, I don't, cause I was a horrible student, dude. I was a terrible, I was a monster because I was bored out of my mind. All that boring, just sitting there. Kids aren't supposed to sit that long. Hey, let's start there. And, and, and so I get off stage at tech or to TEDx and, and I go, I'm in. 
it's over. I commit. I'm doing this for, he, he did it for 40. I'm going to do it for 50. I want, cause I'm like, what, what would that feel like? What would it feel like to do something? How good could I get? What does that actually feel like? What does the sensation feel like for accumulating that kind of that body of knowledge being full time for 50 years? What, and, and, and me, I'm the most simple dude in the room for sure. I couldn't get it out of my head. So you've been at this over a decade now. Yeah. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on since the beginning? Too many things to, for one thing to, to jump up. So the answer is yes. And it's no. Well, okay. So, okay. One thing out of many, now that I'm thinking about it, you, yes, really good questions, man. Um, I bet you had, did you, did you have these questions prepared? Uh, some, not all. And that's good, man. It's, 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 this is fantastic. One thing that I change what I consider to be a good session for when I first started, I had to, I, the person had to be in tears. If they didn't cry, if I didn't break them, it wasn't a good session because I was insecure and immature. And I wanted them to walk out of that session going, that was the most powerful thing that I've ever done. And then go tell everybody. And I'm like, wait a minute, am I doing that for them? Or am I doing that for me? It's like, no, dude, you're doing that for you. Get, just get honest, buddy. Say it. It's okay. Again, courage bravery. And I was like, okay. And now I am a, it's Luke Skywalker. It's some Luke Skywalker shit. And now I'm in a, a minimum effective dose. If I show up for a session, it's, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like I'm, 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 I got most of, I still got a little bit of Luke Skywalker in me. Okay. I'm going to Obi-Wan. I'm way softer. Yeah. So minimum effective dose. And if I help somebody get a story that they've never written down before, written down, and we change a couple of words, that's fantastic. It's enough. It's enough to open something and then the openness and whatever gets in there, which is partially their breath, that will do the rest. So I'm doing, I see myself as doing less now than I used to is breathing, feeling. How about that? Yeah. When I first started, I would, I refused to allow myself to have an emotion in there. No way. Not me. I got it all figured out. And now, dude, if I, if I get emotional in a session with somebody, that's totally okay. As long as I'm breathing well, as long as I'm breathing well, because when I first started, I didn't have the breathing component. And when someone would get emotional, I just, I'd get even harder. And now get your breath low and slow. I get my breath low and slow and keep it there. And if I have a feeling about anything, if I feel, if I have emotion, it's compassion, it's empathy, whatever it is. If it reminds me of something that happened in, in my life that, that, you know, I've still got some emotional charge to, I allow that to happen. Cause guess what? I'm a person. Turns out I'm a human being and I have feelings and it's, I'm supposed to have feelings. And if I'm breathing while I'm feeling, then I'm in an evolutionary state. If I, if my breathing is trapped in my chest while I am feeling, then I am in a revolutionary state. Revolve, revolve, all the stuff is coming back down. Anyone who asks, they, they, they're like, we need a revolution. They don't know what they're talking about unless they do know what they're talking about. And then that's even scarier because a revolution, all the junk is coming back around again, even the guillotines. Okay. This is why communism keeps circling back around and chaos ensues until it peters itself out and then the thing gets built up again and then somebody comes up with this idea that you know we all need to be equal in every single sense no dummy no how about upward mobility and and a meritocracy pirates man they instituted they were the first people on the planet 
to institute workers' comp and profit sharing. And they had a, their own Bill of Rights. The United States Declaration of Independence was influenced by charters that pirates had on the open seas. They were they 50, 35 to 50 percent of of each pirate ship was made up of freed slaves. Okay, it, it was it was. Are you good at what you do? And do you have my back? And if, if people could say yes to that, come on in. So it was a it was a real meritocracy. And those are the dude, the pirates, man, shit. What were we talking about? <laughs> you love going off on tangents. Yeah, I do. So one question I do have for you is: How do you tango with people whose stories they use as fuel? So some of these tra- traumatic things that have occurred to them in the past while they may not have the best relationship with them, they have found some level of success through using that story to kind of help fuel them. How do you help them see that kind of what got them to to A isn't going to get them to B? So what got them here isn't going to get them there? And how do you help them navigate through stories that they have been using as as fuel? That's easy. I mean, do they want to? Are they interested in, do, do they want to? Do they want to change any part of their story? If they do, cool. Let's get whatever part of your stories present themselves as repetitive and caustic out of your head. And the victim mentality is powerful for sure. I mean, some people run the entirety of their life off of it. It it very rarely has a happy ending because the breath is trapped. And it usually, it's like the worst multi-level marketing program ever. It wants, it wants you, it wants all your friends. It's like, yeah. And, and yeah, it's very easy. If somebody, if somebody wants some help with a story, cool. If somebody doesn't, cool. That's their story. And if someone does, when people get honest, again, bravery and courage, if people get honest about themselves. They, they know where their pain's coming from. They know where their pain's coming from and they know what parts of their stories are problematic. There's a lot of people that have gotten to the top with an underdog story. If you want to enjoy being at the top and prolong your stay up there, you're going to have to check that shit. Because otherwise, you or me or anyone who runs it will find a villain up there. You'll find a villain because that's the thing about the victim mentality. It has to have a villain. And it'll make one up out of thin air or it'll superimpose that veneer on somebody, some semi-innocent bystander or completely in it, like your wife. Well, that brings up a good good point. Um, What is the relationship between internal dialogue and external dialogue? Not much. Not much. So there are, there are similarities and there are differences. You know, if most people's internal dialogue was externalized, they'd be in an insane asylum. Most people's internal dialogue is a thousand times shittier than what comes out of their mouth because they know what'll happen. Most people say stuff to themselves in their, in their mind. They wouldn't say to a dog, but we'll get upset with somebody else that says something to us once. And we've said that and a lot worse to ourselves a thousand times. I mean, who talks more trash? Who talks more trash to us than us? Nobody. It's not even close. It's not even a second. Is there, there's no close second. So there's, there's a difference there. So for instance, like what, what is the sweet spot between utilizing the, the self-talk that we do have, even when it is negative to kind of help guide us through some of our decision-making, like how much of that do we want to offboard and how much of it do we want to rely on? It's a good question. Treat it like a buffet. 
because because there's a difference. You know, I, I have all these negative thoughts. Look at the words, everybody. I have all these negative thoughts. Okay, what does that imply? That implies that all of them are yours and you're responsible for all of them. Have. Versus observe. I observe all these negative thoughts. Who says, who says that you have to believe? Whoever said that you had to believe? So it comes down to belief. Whoever said that you or me or anyone had to believe thoughts that show up in their head? No one ever told me that. No one ever said you have to. I just thought I did. Because it's my own voice in my own head, of course. Most people treat the voice in their own head like the voice of God. It's not the voice of God, okay? And my advice is to learn to observe them. Learn to observe interesting, potentially negative thoughts, as opposed to attached to them. It's like the buffet. It's like you walk up to a buffet. Are you responsible for all the food on the buffet? No. You're responsible for the food that you put on your plate and that you go back and eat, okay? So you're responsible. Let's make this practical. You're responsible for what comes out of your mouth. You're responsible for what comes out of your mouth, okay? Because you're now putting it out there, whatever it is. You're responsible for the thoughts that you attach to, believe to be true, and and enact in your life. And all the other ones, whatever. I do that all the time. I observe thoughts. I'm like, that's weird. No, no. No. Yes. Yes. I like that. Yep. That's good. And then I'll take it and I'll shape it because I know how to play with my words. Your mom said, don't play with your food. Mark Ingle is telling you to play with your words. And the fastest way to learn to play with your words is to write them down and observe them, to think about your thinking. Shout out to our man, Alan Watts. When we learn to think about our thinking, we become alive in a new way. Most people are not thinking about their thinking. They're just thinking, and there's a difference. I want to talk to you about the Unlifted program partially out of selfish personal interests and also for the audience to get a better understanding of what it is you do and how you've structured that program uh, to help coaches. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so that's what we do. Um, uh, everybody, Derek might have said this in the, the intro. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Enlifted and I'm the head coach. I deliver all of our trainings and we're in the badass coach making business. Okay. And that informs majorly and partially that that's even a byproduct of how we find, we got to call it coaching. So people know what it is, but it's more than that. Transformational wordsmithing. It is, it is an art. It is a craft also known as helping somebody change the story that they tell themselves. Also known as helping somebody shift their mindset. Also known as helping somebody dismantle the victim mentality. That ladies and gentlemen is an art. It is an art. It is a craft. It is a practice and we appreciate it, approach it and teach it as such. So our level one certifications are the 10 people max per cert. And they're all, it's, it's of course they're virtual, but they're taught live. There's no online courses that we use as supplemental uh, material. And all of the, every, every weekly group class is taught live by me. All of the one-on-one sessions are done live. Okay. By me. And because that's because I want, like I said, most people, most people would pay not to do the work, this kind of work, pick up the heavy ass pen and and write the scary words down and go in, go into the story. You want me to go into that stuff? No, I'm spending a lot of time, effort, emotions, and, and money. If you look at it directly and indirectly on trying to avoid that stuff, even though that doesn't work. Um, 
I'd pay not, most people would pay not to do this kind of thing. And there are people out there that do pay to do this kind of thing. And they're the right kind of weird people that I want to know. So I want to hang out with those people in the certificate. I want to spend time with you and pass along the tools and, I, and, and part of my excitement, man, that shit rubs off. Now I, I know cool is an opinion and this stuff is for me, this stuff is super cool and very valuable. How the story that we tell ourselves is, yeah, go ahead. How important do you think it is for the coaches that you work with to do a great degree of self-exploration before putting these practices into play with other people? It's not a requirement before they put it into practice with other people? Yes. Oh, a lot, majorly, because guess what? If someone goes in there, um, if someone starts helping people change their story, go going into their mindset, pulling up those old stories and feelings and emotions and they are ignorant about where and where to breathe and why to breathe there you're going to drama and trauma bond with your client so if your client gets emotional about something and you haven't done the adequate piece of work on yourself to one um because the better piece of the better piece of work that someone has done on their story and level one is equal parts, personal professional development. It, it's, it's the first month of level one just sucks. It's very heavy lifting, emotionally speaking when, and when someone goes in there and they, they dismantle stuff. Okay. They dismantle the victim mentality. Every story that, that people get from out of their head and written down and, and four stepped, they unlock a part of their mental real estate and their breath. And, and, um, and so that, that gives them the ability plus the amount of times I repeat myself, I got a black belt in repeating myself. The amount of times that I repeat myself throughout level one on where to breathe low and slow and why, and then they get into sessions with people and because they've done that good work on themselves and they know to breathe well, then they're going to breathe well while their clients are getting emotional. And that is super important. Most people are not trained to do that well. And so when, or at all, and so when their client gets emotional, they get emotional. And then you've got, you've got that drama trauma bond. And when you, and you lose access to your tools, you get stuck. You don't know what to do. It's a big mess. And we help people avoid that. So yeah, you want to, it's, it's like, a okay, let me, that was, that was a lot of words. I can make this way simpler. If someone's taking you on a, a, a they're, 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 it's a, it's a trek to a, the top of the mountain. You want them to have gone up there before. Yeah. Well, and it, there, it crosses over well into to fitness, right? I mean, if it's, exactly. uh, because it's not just the, the person or member or client entrusting uh, their time with the coach, right? It's also the belief that, they're going to be able to take me from start to finish. For sure. And, and by the way, when someone is breathing well, when their client is going into stuff, it makes them, it makes it so much easier to get the stuff out. Well, let's just stay on the good listening thing. Good breathing. Here's, here's, here's a good formula folks. It's true too. Good breathing equals good coaching because good breathing equals good listening and good listening equals good coaching. So good breathing equals good coaching. When people say, oh, that person is so easy to talk to, also known as it's easy to get the stuff out around them, 99.9% .9 of the time, that's because that person's breathing's okay, at least okay. 
very rarely someone's like all tight and they're like someone's starting to share and they're like, Oh God, people don't want to, people don't want to open up to people like that. People don't, they don't feel safe opening up to people that are bad breathers. People feel safe opening up to people that are good breathers or opening up with, with people, with people that are good breathers. Cause there's a difference. I'm responsible for my clients or I'm responsible with my clients. The first one's amateur hour. The second one is pro. I love it. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you jumping on with me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and I myself Good will question. be looking, Thank you. looking into your Enlifted program here coming up. T- tell uh, the audience where they can learn more about you and what you do. For the certifications, Enlifted.me. And there's a, there's a soft talk challenge on Enlifted.me. Seven days of emails. It's free. It helps you get the thinks and the maybes and the mites and the sort ofs and the kind ofs and the guesses and the almost likes and the possiblies and the probablys and the hopefullys and the one days and the tries and all that junk out of your language because it's in there. Um, so you, you want to do that. And then all the information about certs and booking in for a discovery call is on that website. It's a pretty website too. And then um, Instagram. Gonna, it's, it's gonna take off one of these days. I'm convinced. Uh, at and lifted coaches, that's us. Fantastic. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on. I'm so glad that we got a chance to jam for the audience. I know it was uh, it was a blast getting you on the phone and and picking your brain about a month ago or so while you were on a road trip. So uh, this is this has been great. And I know the audience will take a lot out of it. Thank you for having me on, Derek. Thanks everybody for listening. Much appreciated. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.